Hello everyone and happy Christmas. We have now moved into the Christmas season in the church calendar and I hope you had a great week last week. For those of you I got to see um, last Sunday, that was an incredible gift and I'm so grateful for that. So we are continuing our journey in Exodus. Try to hold back your excitement. And we left off talking about the plagues. So a little bit of a backstory here. Israel has been in slavery in Egypt for 430 years, which is a while. And uh, Pharaoh basically enslaved Israel because he was threatened by their growing numbers. And yet, crazy, the more that he oppressed the Hebrew people or the Israelites, the more the Hebrews grew. So he ordered that all Hebrew babies be murdered as a way to establish his authority and his power. He had a horrible way of trying to establish order and defeating chaos, and that was through injustice and brutality and evil oppression. So it was as the Hebrews cried out to their God that their God heard their cries of anguish and acted in redemptive ways by calling Moses, who was a Hebrew raised in Pharaoh's palace, and instructing him to go to Pharaoh, demanding that God's people be set free. But when Moses and his brother Aaron approached Pharaoh for the first time, things got worse before they got better. When they told Pharaoh, let my people go on behalf of Yahweh, Pharaoh became angry and decided to stop this rebellion on the Hebrews' part by making their slavery worse and increasing their workload. So the Israelites were angry with Moses. I mean, they felt like their slavery was more, um, was, was less bearable than it was even before Moses showed up and said that Yahweh was going to save God's people. And so then God comes back and, and reiterates through Moses that I am going to be your God and you are going to be my people and I will take you to a place where you can be free and I will deliver you from the hand of the Egyptians. But Exodus 6 says that the Israelites didn't listen or couldn't listen because of their broken spirits in their harsh slavery. So God recognized that Israel was wounded and exhausted and didn't have the ability at that point to um, necessarily believe this crazy idea that they could be rescued. And so God decided to show these people who it was who was promising deliverance and who it was who said, I will be your God and you will be my people. Through the plagues, Israel watched from the sideline as God showed the limitations of Pharaoh's power and contrasted that with the limitless power of Yahweh. And God did this through plagues or signs. So through turning water into blood or swarms of frogs or flies or gnats or diseased livestock or even painful boils on people. And somehow this show of authority also increased the knowledge of who God was and strengthened the Israelites' faith in a God that they thought was just a legend or some mythical idea. So the plagues were not just these uh, simply, you know, irrational mama bear responses, you know, of 
who, you know, her enacting revenge on whoever messes with her children. But it's really because God also doesn't tolerate injustice and it has to be called for what it is. So the plagues were just the signs of the undoing of creation and basically the continuation of the world Pharaoh was trying to create, one based on evil and disorder and injustice and oppression. So you want a world ruled by chaos and brutality? Here's what it looks like. And it's not pretty. The last plague is the most gut-wrenching. The plagues have always been a struggle for me, but especially this last one when God says that if Pharaoh does not cooperate, then the firstborn of every person and every animal will die. And God assures Moses that this will be the last sign before Pharaoh relents. The devastation that would result um, would cause this great cry of anguish, much like the one that called God and moved God to work for the Hebrew people in the first place. Death was coming, but this time the cries wouldn't be from the Hebrews. The cries of anguish would come from the Egyptians. The final plague was different than the previous nine in that it establishes what will be known as the Passover observance or the Passover feast. So Passover would become an annual ritual honored by Israel in all future generations. It would serve as a reminder of the ways that God delivered the Israelites from Egypt, kind of one of those touchstone moments that Israel could always come back to as how their identity was established and what it meant that God would be for them, that it wasn't just empty words, but active love and active deliverance. Each family within the faith community was told they needed to get a goat or a lamb and they were told how to kill it and how to cook it and how to eat it and what to wear when they were eating it and at what time and even what to do with the leftovers of the meat in the morning. So each family, as they killed the animal, would then take the blood and put some on the doorposts and uh, on the upper beam, so all around the doorframe, so that at midnight, when God moved through the land, bringing the plague of death into each home, wherever God saw the blood on the doorframe, God would pass over that home and know that death and destruction would come there. And so Passover would be a time when God was remembered as passing over and sparing Israel from death. And there were clear directions here. Israel was going to have to do something. And in the whole Exodus narrative, this is kind of a first, right? I mean, up until this point, the Israelites have been silent observers. God has been the one to act, and God hasn't asked Israel to do anything. We haven't even heard from them since before the plague started when they expressed their broken spirit and harsh slavery and how it made that and how that made it difficult for them to listen to Yahweh. With every sign, the entire land of Egypt was infested and affected by these plagues, the terrifying darkness, the destructive hail. But in the midst of this, no plague ever touched the area in which the Israelites were living. There was some kind of safety protection provided for God's people, and the plagues never crossed that line. 
And yet Israel didn't have to do anything in order to be protected from the plagues. They didn't hide behind Moses as he yelled. They didn't have to sign off agreeing to the plagues. They didn't even have to be on God's side or believe God. They didn't even have to um, in, in any way express any kind of trust or faith. They were protected from the plagues regardless of whether or not they believed and regardless of whether or not they even wanted rescue or protection. But now the drama is at its height. Yahweh has shown to be has shown himself to be like no other. And Pharaoh was desperately holding on to whatever sense of power, whatever illusion of power that he felt he had. So Israel had started to figure out, yes, Yahweh is God. And people in Egypt had started to figure out, absolutely, Yahweh is God. Even Pharaoh's officials, where God says that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh's officials and Pharaoh, and there's a lot around that, but we see that there was still a choice because these same officials whose hearts were hardened have begged Pharaoh to relent and release God's people because they recognize this is the hand of God. So as all these people were starting to figure out, yes, Yahweh is the God of all and is like none other. Now it was time to choose. By enslaving God's people, Pharaoh took away their choice. Acts of oppression and injustice and cruelty always seek to steal people's voice, seek to steal their autonomy and their power and their choice. And whenever we attempt to silence the voice of another, we dehumanize that person. We take away what makes them human. And in the last plague, we see Israel not as voiceless slaves, not as observers, not as those who've been sidelined, but as people with a choice and having a say in their own deliverance. They had no say when they were being enslaved. And so God, in inviting them to participate in the Passover and in inviting them to mark themselves as chosen and connected to God by putting door like blood on the doorpost, God was saying that they had a say. They had a choice. They could choose to participate in the delivering work that God was enacting. And by giving them a choice, God is reinstating their humanity and reminding them that they are more than what they have experienced. And they are more than what the Egyptians have told them that they are. God is also saying you don't have to be rescued. You don't have to follow. You don't have to allow yourself to be loved. There's always a choice for us, for the Israelites, and for the Egyptians. There's a choice to follow God or not. A choice to acknowledge or ignore the voice of God, to dismiss the actions of God as a coincidence, or to step aside and look at the divine. There's a choice to hear God or turn away. A choice to give in to cynicism or to choose faith. Think about Jesus in the New Testament, who known for these incredible healing works, bringing sight to the blind and raising people from the dead. And yet you never see Jesus demanding that people be healed. It's not like he hikes up his tunic and he like chases people down. He's like, you will be healed. There's always a choice in allowing the healing work of God to take hold and grow in our lives. We have a choice to turn back or turn forward. A choice to believe the lie of culture or to believe the truth of God. A choice to open ourselves up 
to something more than our addictive relationships and our toxic situations, opening ourselves up to the possibility of freedom and change. God is not going to force us to be rescued. Even with the Israelites, who very clearly get directions on what they need to do, it was still their choice, life or death, blood on doorpost, or be like the rest of the culture. God has been strengthening the Israelites' faith legs, but they're the ones that have to stand up. God has instructed what it looks like to walk, but they're the ones who have to take the step. And that's the same for us, all the ways in which God has acted. And yet we're the ones who take these steps, who move toward the God who has invited us into freedom. I know we all say that we want change, and I believe that we are sincere in that, but sometimes choosing life requires difficult actions. It may not always require choosing the exact right lamb and killing it the appropriate way and cooking it the appropriate way and eating it the appropriate way, but it requires us to give something up, whether it's my own idea of how things should be or the script I have of my life or the hatred or resentment I want to hold on to. When I say I want freedom uh, from my own self-centeredness, what I'm really wanting is for God to magically bring about change and healing. And I often forget that I'm the one who has to allow that change and receive that healing. I fully believe that God doesn't ask us to do what we're not capable of doing, but I also have to see what I am capable of doing. Am I resistant to change God wants to bring in the deepest places of my heart? Am I afraid of what will happen as light is shown in those places that I most want to hide? Because when I see things, then it means I have to change. That's probably why so many of us pretend we don't see things or hear things, because it requires change. It requires something of us. I want to be freed from unforgiveness, but I want, to, I want it to happen effortlessly. You know, I want to be loving, but only when people are loving toward me and definitely not when they're smarter or funnier than me. Israel wanted to be freed, but it was also unfamiliar and kind of frightening. The Passover came with these strict directions outlining all of these details, but obedience was still going to be a choice. It was going to lead to life, but it was up to the Israelites to take those steps. Growth is always going to call us to choose. If we want to grow in awareness and love, we have to make those choices. God creates space in which we can choose those things. But it's up to us whether or not we'll actually get over ourselves. When I traveled to Maui years ago to teach a conference, I brought with me my, at that point, only child, my oldest, and a two-year-old ocean-loving little girl, right? And leading up to the trip, she was nonstop talking about the ocean. She'd never seen it, but she'd always been fascinated by it, talking about the waves and floating in what seemed like this boundless swimming pool. And so as we flew there, she told stories that she had made up about the ocean. And then once we were in the car driving to the ocean, she sang songs and only became silent when she saw the wild waves crashing. So she wanted to go straight there. I grabbed a beach chair, immediately set down the towels, and she kicked off her shoes, both feet hopped into the sand, and in this ninja-like move, as quickly as she could, came back to the beach chair and looked at the sand in absolute horror. 
I just remember her going, what is that? She cried. And she was like looking at the sand as if it was covered in beheaded Care Bears or something. And I guess becoming defensive of nature in the sand, I was like, that's just sand. That's what happens with the ocean. This is a part of this whole thing. She just looked at the ocean and cried. She said, I don't ever want to walk on that sand again. It was very dramatic. Like, oh, the ocean and yet the sand. And I was moved by watching her here. She had wanted to be in the ocean and near the ocean for so long. And she said, I want to go in the water, but I can't. We've been promised this life of joy and peace. And we want it more than anything. And yet sometimes it's that sand that stops us, that we see the ocean and we see what we want, but there are some things that might be uncomfortable and unfamiliar that we have to walk through in order to get it. In my own journey, as I began to practice honesty and openness, I noticed pockets of resistance. I didn't like letting go. I didn't like trying to be authentic instead of controlling what people thought about me. I wanted freedom and health, but I didn't want to take the steps to get there. I loved the ocean, but I wasn't willing to walk on the sand. All of us have moments in our journey, like the Israelites, where it feels like our feet might be frozen, or it's scary because it's unknown, and that can be paralyzing. It can crop up at any time or place along our journey. It might happen when we experience loss or rejection, frustration, when we feel overwhelmed or discouraged or alone. But at some point, along our path, we are going to come up across a territory that we'd rather avoid. And it's at that point, our choice matters so much. We need to hang on in that moment to the broader vision of where we're going and the life we want. Yahweh had given Israel that broader vision. God promised to be with them and to deliver them. And they watched as God defeated the suffocating culture and the enemy king who ran it. But it was time to choose, as it always is. Do you put the blood on the doorpost? Do you step out in faith? Do you believe a God despite hearing the voice of the enemy for so long? And this was a choice that mattered more than others. When it came down to it, Israel was going to have to choose between life and death. And they were going to have to choose that more than once. God laid out how, but they had to do it. It was the ultimate picture of what they would learn in their journey, that God is the source of life, that God provides for our deepest needs. The world can't meet the insatiable needs we have for belonging and love and value. But we have a choice who we listen to and who we follow. Israel, despite listening to the voice of Egypt for years, decided to step out in faith, put the blood on the doorpost, follow the directions of Yahweh, and choose life. Putting blood on the doorpost with both an act of courage and of hope. And as we move forward, it's not about trusting in our own feet. It's about trusting in the God who invites and calls us. As Elias sat there crying and looking at the sand between her and that water, she all of a sudden saw a sea turtle out on the horizon. And it was clear to her that this ocean that she wanted was full of life and was calling her. And even though she wasn't familiar with the territory between her and what she wanted, she went for it and she ran. And I watched her as she splashed in the waves, feeling fully alive. 
no matter what the territory is that we are asked to step out in, in faith, know that it's worth the life that is on the other side. And through the process of choice, we learn more about who this God is who is calling us, the one who makes it possible for us to choose life, the one who has promised to be with us as we cross the sand, as we put the blood on the doorpost, as we watch the power and strength that God always exhibits on our behalf. God is the one who has shown to be limitless in the face of limitations. God strengthens our faith, showing that the divine love is trustworthy. Will we respond with a renewed heart? Will we say yes to life? My challenge for us this week is to choose, to choose joy, to choose freedom, to choose healing and growth and life. Today, will we trust the God who promises to be with us in small struggles, and huge battles. The choice is ours. Peace to you, family.